On today's episode of the Digging In Podcast, we talk about the intertestamental period. What is up, Digging In family? Welcome back to another episode of the Digging In podcast, Lessons from Series. Holy cow, guys, we are about to open up the New Testament. How incredible is this moment? I hope you guys are feeling super pumped up and ready to go. Man, thank you so much for joining us for this week and for this, I mean, I want to. I keep wanting to say half, but it's really not going to be half. We're going to do a lot less episodes in the New Testament, but Thank you for joining us uh, for this part of our Lessons From series. We are looking at these stories of so many different biblical characters and biblical situations as well and seeing what we can learn from them. Today is is it's the same thing. Today is the exact same thing. And some of you just heard the intro um, or some of you read the title of this episode and you're like, what on earth is this? And let me tell you what, this is a super important episode for us uh, for a lot of reasons. But first and foremost, guys, congratulations on making it this far into the podcast. I mean, if you even clicked on the, the, this episode to listen to me talk about this, then congratulations. Many people probably read that and they're like intertestamental period. Or they said intertestamental, uh, whatever. I'm not listening to the episode. And, you know, honestly, sometimes I think I probably would do the same thing. But hey, nonetheless, man, as many of you guys know, I'm super nerdy and I really appreciate uh, super nerdy things. And I would love to just sit here and tell you this is just a super nerdy thing that some people get and some people don't. But I think this is actually super important to the way that we read the Bible. Because when we close the Old Testament and, and open up the New Testament, so to speak, uh, we're, we're looking at a time period that's actually 400 to 500 years removed from the last book. 400 to 500 years, guys. So yeah, that's, that's the intertestamental period. It's this period of time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a 400 plus year gap of time in which we don't actually have any sort of biblical evidence of here of exactly what's happening. But thankfully, oh, praise God, thankfully, there's plenty of historical proof as to everything you're going to hear today. It's not just that it's not in the Bible, so therefore we can't trust it. No, there's a lot of stuff that happened in history at that time with Israel and the Jewish people still at the heart of everything that is proof for everything that happened that I'm going to describe to you today. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that moment. And I, and, and I can tell you, you already have imagined that moment because that moment was when, when uh, Joseph left uh, Israel and brought his family down to Egypt right? But what happens is that we close the book on Joseph and things are just great. The Pharaoh down there loves him. He's awesome. And what we open up the book to is a horrendous Pharaoh who hates the Jewish people and wants to kill all of them. So in 400 years time, we can see some really terrible, terrible things happening. And that's honestly, again, like I'm saying, that is, that's where we are when we open up the New Testament is 400 years removed from Malachi's final words of the books of the prophets. And so we talked about how 
in the last book that we talked about, we talked about the Chronicler. We talked about how he's looking out over everything and he's basically casting, uh, he's casting the whole vision of all that Israel was and is uh, up until that moment to, to remind Israel about who God is. And the, the thing about that entire time period is that, I mean, things were looking kind of up for them with the Chronicler. Now, what we, what we ended up learning as we kind of have worked through the stories of, of all the prophets is that there were a few prophets that were prophesying during, uh, during certain times before the exile. Then there were some, uh, people that were talking during the exile. And then there were some people talking after the exile, right? We had some prophets in all those areas. Well, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are three of those prophets who are all post exile prophets. What that means is their, their heyday, their time where they were working was post the exile. And so, although I think looking back at the story of Israel with the chronicler is super important, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi actually have the final words for us. And that is why ultimately that is why Malachi is the last book of our Christian Bible. And so it makes perfect sense because as you read Malachi, you you read a lot of the words that are looking to and hoping for the Messiah, Jesus, right? And, And there's, there's so much that is essentially in, in that that's within the book of Malachi. In fact, what ends up happening in Malachi is in Malachi 3, uh, verse 1, we see these, these words that some of you guys, if you've read the New Testament, read through the New Testament, you've actually heard them before. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. If you guys have heard that, prepare the way, he's preparing the way for the Lord, then you, you know that that's John the Baptist. And so one of the last prophecies in the entire book of Malachi, one of the last ones in the entire Old Testament, is that John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the Lord. But the problem, once again, the problem is that when Malachi ends and Matthew, the book of Matthew opens, There's a 400 year gap. If we know anything about any sort of time period in in ancient Israel is that leaders and new powers happen every single day. It seems like at one moment, these people are in charge and the next moment, these people are in charge. And in Israel, or some people call them Palestine at this time, that area was, was just a football getting tossed around between the different powers. They were just constantly being controlled by different powers. And in fact, they're, when they leave exile in Babylon and, and, and then rebuild the walls in Jerusalem in 455, they are sitting in a time period where things are starting to look good for them, but really they're just another small nation. And ultimately in 331, the Medo-Persian kingdom actually ends up falling. So the people who brought them, allowed them to go back into Jerusalem to rebuild, who are still in control, they fall to another kingdom. And this kingdom is none other than the ancient power of Greece. This is Alexander the Great. And so he comes in in 331 and his whole entire vision for how he wanted to rule was this thing called Hellenism. And Hellenism, don't try to break the word down, assuming that you can break it down from there. Hellenism is the Greekifying of everyone. And what I mean by that is, if you remember back to the story of Daniel, uh, the king at that time period in Babylon took Daniel and a bunch of other youths, you know, people aged probably like, you know, eight years old to, to 15 years old or so, 
and took them and tried to assimilate them, try to teach them Babylonian culture, Babylonian language, Babylonian food, Babylonian tradition, right? That's what happened with Daniel. The same exact thing was happening with Alexander the Great. He wanted everyone to just be Greek. He said, you're going to learn our language. You're going to write like us. You're going to talk like us. You're going to sound like us. Everything you do is going to be Greek. Now, this would have been a massive offense to God and the people of Israel as they are meant to be a nation called out, set apart to be different. But the problem was, is Alexander the Great was only 24 years old and he'd already conquered most of the known world at that time. The guy was mind, like mind-blowingly powerful, right? Riding, riding on elephants across the mountains. And had a huge army, but alongside his army, he had huge groups of scientists. Like he was, he was just a brilliant, brilliant, smart and powerful dude. And all he wanted was unity, but unity under the name of Greek power. And so that was through Hellenism, which is, you know, this, this concept of forcing people to give up what they know to learn something new, to look more like everyone else. And so they, kind of, you know, time passed. Alexander the Great, he, he, he had this huge idea for it, but it wasn't until Antiochus III, uh, later down the line in like uh, early 200 uh, or maybe like 190s BC, Antiochus III took power and he forced people to learn Greek culture. This is primarily why the New Testament is going to be written in the Greek language because everyone at that time was just, they, they, everyone knew Greek. Greek was actually the most common thing spoken. Although Rome was controlling them when we open up, we'll get there, but Rome is controlling them. But even though that is the case, Greek was the, it was the Hellenistic movement of learning Greek and having Greek empower all of the, the motivations and language and culture of that time. And in Israel was actually way more more powerful and significant. And so that is why we read a Greek New Testament for the most part. And so during this time period, uh, the Pharisees were created. And now you may be flinching at the phrase Pharisees, but these Pharisees were actually a small group of people who were against this Hellenistic movement, against this Greekifying of everything. They wanted to keep their ways, their ways. They wanted to keep Jewish tradition. So what did they do? They fought against it. They fought against all of this culture by being ultra zealous, by being super pious, by being wildly obedient obedient to the T. So when we open up and read about the Pharisees in Jesus' time, we're reading about people who are so far removed actually from this original group of Pharisees that what they're chasing in, in the Jesus' time is this self-righteous pursuit of, if you're not like me, if you don't do things my way, then you probably don't even know God. But the point of the Pharisees, the point of what they were trying to do was to just be so obedient to Jewish culture and to Jewish law that they were actually the ones who were standing out. So they were trying to respond to that Exodus 19 call to be different and not like the rest of the world. But unfortunately, uh, in 175 BC, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power. He was also known as Antiochus. I'm not going to even try to say his other name. It sounds like Epiphanes, but it's like got a letter M in it and it's just different. But that meant the Antiochus of revelation. The Antiochus is new, but the Jewish people called him Antiochus the insane. 
And the reason was, is because this guy brought forward an anti-Semitism that had not yet been rivaled by any other human being. He, they, he hated the Jews so much that he established this anti-Semitic program where anyone who is observing the Sabbath or anyone who is doing, using the act of circumcision or anyone who is in possession of a Hebrew scripture at all, they were going to be killed. These were capital crimes. He was going to kill anyone who was acting out their Jewish faith. And so that is horrendous on so many levels. He's actually this, people believe that he is actually one of the characters that is being prophesied in the Old Testament as the one who is the abomination and the end of all things. Because this guy comes forward and tries to basically uh, eliminate, obliterate the Jewish culture. And it goes so far as in 167 BC, this guy walks into the temple that people aren't even really going in because they can't really worship the same way because of all the anti-Jewish cultures. And he walks into the Jewish temple. He has a pig with him. And then he throws the pig onto the sacred altar, the same altar that was being essentially that was restored and rededicated all the way back in uh, David's time. Crazy. He takes a pig, throws it on the altar and then sacrifices it for no reason, just to, just to do it, just to make a mockery of the Jewish culture and the Jewish faith. This brings about an area, a time period called the Maccabean revolt. These people, much like the Pharisees were like, you know what, man, this is not good. This is not okay. And, and this is against every ounce of our faith. And so these guys decided to actually partake in guerrilla warfare. And for those of you who don't know what guerrilla warfare is, I'll explain it in a really simple way. It's these groups of guys, these pious Jewish people who were so against the anti-Semitic views of that time where they couldn't worship their own God, they couldn't do anything safely in their own faith. So what did they do? They group up in these small groups of people and started taking out these anti-Semites. So if you guys are any, anywhere familiar with 19, you know, the 1940s and World War II and Hitler and his movement of anti-Semitism and how he was killing millions of Jews, then you would know these stories, these beautiful, famous stories of some of these strong and mighty and powerful and brave Jewish men and women who would stand up and kill Nazis or fight against Nazis because they're like, this is, we've had enough. There was these, this like Maccabean revolt 2.0 in, in uh, World War II. And so it got so intense that these people stood up for themselves and they began to fight back. And this is where uh, one of the guys, his name is Judas Maccabeus or Judas the Hammerer. And he went around and let me tell you what, that dude wrecked shop on some people who hated Jews. And it was because of him and because of this movement that the restoration of religious freedom and the restoration of the actual temple itself and the worship within the temple is rededicated and it rebegins, so to speak. And that's actually the celebration of Hanukkah every year. Hanukkah is celebrated because of this Maccabean revolt. So the intertestamental period, this time between the Old Testament and New Testament is where Hanukkah actually comes about is because they're celebrating a time when the faithful Jewish people fought against the horrible anti-Jewish crowd and brought back the faith. And so maybe you remember the stories of Josiah and Hezekiah where Israel is failing 
And Josiah and Hezekiah tried to restore the faith or when David restored the faith by bringing the ark back in, right? It's just a glorious moment. It's a beautiful and amazing thing. But like all of history goes for Israel, it only lasts so long. And in 60, from 142 BC to 63 BC, that freedom is that freedom of everything is established and it's there. But in 63 BC, Rome has become the new world power. Rome has garnered enough power and, and enough prowess and enough military force where they come into the Palestine area to the Israel area, and they just under the control of Pompey, 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 however you want to say it, utterly obliterate the Greek presence. And that exists for quite a while. And then in 40 uh, BC is when Herod the Great is by Octavius, who becomes Caesar Augustus, um, and Mark Antony, Cleopatra's famous Mark Antony, when those two guys appoint Herod the Great to be the local ruler, the local king, so to speak, of the Israel-Palestine area. He's a puppet king, and the Jewish people hated him. But that's in 40 BC. So Rome has established themselves. They have taken over the world. They've obliterated every amount of Greek presence, yet the culture of, of Greek language and all that is still very prevalent. It's actually the only real culture around. And that is where we open up the New Testament. So imagine now, <laughs> imagine not knowing that. And the only reason I say that is not that you can't connect, but you're looking at two totally different time periods because from the moment that Malachi closes, there are three major kingdoms ruling. The Medo-Persians are still ruling when Malachi is is happening. And then when Malachi closes, the Medo-Persians actually go away and the massive power of the Greek, the Greek army, the Greek military force, and also the Greek culture of Hellenism steps in. And for, I mean, guys, if you do the, if you do the math, you're looking at like, I mean, technically it's almost, it's like 150 some odd years, I think about 150 years of Greek rule and that changes their whole culture and language. And that's again, why the new Testament is written in Greek. And then after, after, you know, Greek gets more and more and more ridiculous and more intense, the Jewish people stand up for what they believe. In and they say, you know what? No, this is not, this is not going to happen. And they stand up for their faith and then they, they receive freedom. And for, you know, a uh, hundred years or so, they have utter freedom, peace. Once again, it's just an amazing time period. But then that peace comes to an end when Rome steps in and becomes the new world power. And they're under Roman rule and Roman control for quite a while. And so when Rome steps in and becomes the power and Herod steps in as the puppet king, local ruler of Israel, Palestine, then we step in to the book of Matthew. And so what is this? What are we trying to talk about? Is this just Finn giving a history lesson? Uh, yes. <laughs> and also no, because here's what, something that I think is super valuable for us to really hold on to right now. Really, really hold on to is look at the story of the Jewish people, because up until this point, it's a, it's the same pattern. They are doing really well. They're climbing up the mountain and they get to the top of the mountain because things are amazing. And then they plummet because the world around them is broken and full of darkness. And they sometimes partake in the darkness. And that allows them to go down, plummeting down the hill or the mountain, so to speak. And they find themselves in a horrible pit of despair. 
And then yet again, God rescues them and shows them who he is. And they arise and rise and rise, remembering God, remembering God. And then they get to a certain height, forget God, think that they've got themselves and they plummet yet again. And then they are rescued once again. And then they plummet once again, rescued, plummet, rescued, plummet. And it's just this constant up, down, up, down, up, down. And the reason why I I think this is so important for us is that they come to a point where yet again, they're at a low. And in during the intertestamental period, we don't read about God's hand reaching them out. But instead we read of a really, really radical thing happening because this is 400 years of silence where, I mean, I, I read someone say 400 silent nights, 400 silent nights. Imagine praying 400 silent nights, never hearing, never knowing where God was. And this is what he was leading them up to, right? Because again, significance of that number 400 is approximately 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And then God spoke up and he heard the people of Israel and their groanings. And he responded with Moses. And how did he respond with the exile by rescuing them out of their slavery? And then 400 years goes by of utter silence. And then God hears his people and he begins the process of rescuing them through the story of Jesus. It's a beautiful re second exile. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing story, but imagine the exile period. Imagine the 400 silent nights just for a second, 400 silent nights. You're, you're just a little small struggling nation and you're just getting tossed around by the great powers of the world. People are forcing you to believe things that you don't want to believe. You thought that when God took you out of Babylon, this would never happen again. And yet here you are again. I mean, a horrible, horrible thing, but then it goes too far one day in 167 BC. And this guy, Mattathias, and his five sons step up and say, enough is enough. By our faith, by what we believe, by our God who has continually rescued us, we are going to stand up against these horrific people. And we are going to make great the name of our God by fighting for him and fighting for our faith. And they stand up and they begin to fight. They begin to fight. And less than 15 years later, they're all destroyed. All of those anti-Semite people, they're all destroyed. And Israel, Palestine has victory and freedom. Once again, they're free to worship their God. And what do they do? They rededicate their first move is to rededicate their temple. It's beautiful. It's just like when they left the exile in Babylon, what did they do? They came back. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They come in and they rededicate everything and everyone is so faithful and they cannot wait to start worshiping their God once again. And that was that period of time all brought about by a faithful few who were willing to stand up against the culture in the world of that day and just live the life that was so different and so countercultural that they just didn't even care. So when I think about the intertestamental period, I don't just think about the 400 years of silence. I do. 
But what I think about is that people who could have been down on their hope and down on any sort of belief were somehow motivated and empowered by the God of the covenant. They said, he's going to keep our promises. He made a promise to us. He's going to keep us safe. He's going to deliver the snake crushing King Messiah one day. But right now we need to stand up for it. We need to stand up for our faith. I am no longer going to give into this culture. So they live differently and they fight against the culture. They fight against the world. They are okay with the fact that everyone else around them might look at them and say, dude, you are weird or that's jacked up or what you believe is wrong. They didn't care. They held so tightly to it and they were given victory. I would say by God, although it was silent, I would say by God, they were given victory. And so they stood up for what they believed in. They were given freedom, even for a brief moment until the next world power came in. But they were given freedom because of their faith. So the lesson today, how is this important? Why is this important? Think about that. Think about it for just five minutes. Why is it important that we stand up and against the modern world and cultures of today where social media and all media of all kinds is in our face telling us that everything that we believe in is wrong and that we're bigots, that we're self-righteous, that we are wrong, that we are all these things. We're just terrible people being Christians. Why is it important for us to stand up against that? I could tell you that Mattathias and the Maccabeans could easily resonate with our situation. And what they would do is they would stand up and they'd fight against it, knowing that what they believed was the only genuine and real truth in this world. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Digging In Podcast Lessons From Series. Join us next time as we open up to the New Testament with the book of Matthew.